Well, welcome once again to a new year at church. And second service is always such a fun service. This is actually, uh, statistically speaking, one of the most attended Sundays of the year because people always start the year with the best of intentions. And especially the first couple Sundays of the year, that really shows up. And, and I hope that you uh, will dedicate yourself to God in all the, of the spiritual disciplines uh, this year Church attendance being one of those, but as we talked about last week, getting in the Word of God, getting in the prayer closet, and being regular to tell others about the gospel, being regular in giving. And this first series of the year is designed to help you with spiritual intentions, to help you with the resolutions uh, that you might have for this year. And so we're going to hear the words of Jesus, uh, come after me. As we get into our message this morning, our theme passage is going to be in Luke chapter 9. If you want to start heading that direction, Luke chapter 9. The notes are provided inside your bulletin today if you'd like to follow along with us. And don't forget this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we have class 101, Discovering Church Membership. And we also have class 301, uh, Discovering Church Ministry. Both of those classes will go from 4 to 8 tonight with dinner in the middle. And we're having uh, pizza and salad tonight, I think, is the dinner in the middle. You can graduate from the class in one night. So that's pretty good. Uh, it's a great way to get your year kick-started. You can still sign up. And I know Pastor Cole mentioned some things at the end about that. So Luke chapter 9, and we'll get into God's Word this morning. If you would, pray for... Uh, my son Dawson and me, as we head for Africa on Tuesday, we're going to be in Uganda uh, for about a week and a half, speaking in some churches, villages, uh, orphanages, and doing a, an institute graduation and some other things. And, and so we're looking forward to, to all of that. Be praying for us. Uh, I won't be here next Sunday. Pastor Cole's going to be speaking the second message of this series, and I know he's excited about that. And I told first service, uh, that this is no time to skip while the pastor's gone. That's what people do, right? Pastor's gone. Oh, this is the Sunday we can sleep in. And, uh, but you guys in the second service already sleep in, so that's not a good excuse anyway. So, so just get in here and, and be faithful, and we're going to have a great time in this series. Luke chapter 9, this is the foundation for a series, verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, so there's that phrase. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And so our first session in Come After Me today, uh, let's talk about the call to follow. The call to follow. The call to come after Jesus. Uh, a lot of people think it's about praying a short prayer and calling yourself a Christian and then living life on your own terms. And actually, the call to follow is a call to come after Jesus as a disciple. And we're going to talk about what that means 
in this modern world of 2019 because it does look different than the first century, right? Uh, uh, unfortunately, we don't just walk outside and follow a rabbi as he goes around the community for, for years of our lives. Yeah, it's just not the way it works as a disciple anymore. But we can still follow that same rabbi with our hearts and our actions, our service and our ministry. And so we're going to talk about how that happens in this modern age. Uh, to talk a little bit about modern age, how many of you uh, really dig technology? You're like, you're big technology fans. Okay, how many of you are technology haters? You'd like to go back to the Stone Age? Okay. Uh, so, now, how many of you really, you seriously would be fine if you lived in the 1800s? Be, be okay with that? All right, well, just checking how, we, how we're go, doing with this. All right, so how many of you uh, are Apple people? You like Apple computers, Apple stuff? Okay, how many of you are PC people? You like uh, Windows, that kind of stuff? How many of you don't know the difference between the two? Okay, all right, so yeah, let me give you a little quiz here, some of you who are sort of computer literate, maybe. Uh, if you want to undo something in a document, okay, you want to undo something in a document, what is the quick command for a Mac? What's the quick command for that? What is it? Command Z. Somebody over here said that. Uh, you got it. You nailed it. Okay, what's the quick command for Windows? Control Z. See? So you guys got this. Now, now if you do many documents, you know that the quick command for undoing something is a great feature. And it will get you out of a lot of trouble when you accidentally do the wrong thing. When you accidentally add the wrong thing or delete the wrong thing. Wouldn't it be nice if there were an undo button for life? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, there actually is. Now, go with me to Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1. Let's talk about... Uh, this reset button, this undo button for life. Mark chapter 1, we'll read there in just a second. I was uh, telling the first service, I had a recollection of uh, when I was in college, the first personal computers had just come out where you could have one at your own house. And, and my dad had purchased an Atari computer. And uh, man, things were hip and moving, I'm telling you. Uh, and he had it in his office, and he worked at a church. And I was in college. I was in Bible college. And so I had worked till like 10 or 11 at night. And then I had a paper that was due the next day that I unfortunately had not started yet. Now, how many of you kind of that's happened to you before, right? Uh, and and the, page, the paper is the end of a semester. It was a 20-page paper. 20-page paper. I hadn't started yet. That's a really dumb move. And, and so I got in there, and I had some materials because... You couldn't look things up really on the internet. There really wasn't much of an internet at that point. And, and so I'm looking at all these books and typing this stuff and putting in the footnotes. And I got to page 18 of my paper. And I did not know that the janitor had entered into the building. It's about 3.30 in the morning. And uh, the stinking janitor had come in the building. And uh, he had turned on the floor machine to buff the floors. And when he turned on the floor machine, it blew the breaker in my dad's office for the computer. And I had saved nary a word. Not one. I lost 18 pages of stuff 
right? I may have uttered some Christian curse words at that point. <laughs> I may have. Maybe even some not-so-Christian ones. Um, and, of course, it was a Christian home class, how to be a good husband and father. When you hit your thumb with the hammer, you're supposed to say, Oh, cookies. Oh, that hurts a little. Okay, so you got to have the, the Christian way to do it. Yeah, man, baptistry has made it human in here. How many of you guys feel like human this morning? See, right here. I like you. Take that off. But uh, So I lost the whole thing, 18 pages, and I had to start over. And I still got it in, but it was one of the longest nights of my life. And, and so the reset button, the undo button comes in handy. You're in Mark 1 now, verse 16. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now, if you can imagine, this is tough to do because uh, most of us don't really know the mindset of the first century. But if you could imagine living in Israel 2,000 years ago. And it's the land of your ancestors, but you aren't in charge. Uh, the Romans have taken over. And your family is poor. And God seems distant. There hasn't been a prophet in the land for 400, re 400 years. And you have no reason to expect that uh, your kids will grow up with any more hope than you have. And then all, all of a sudden there's this news that spreads like wildfire. Down at the crossing, there's a prophet. And the crossing is that point in the Jordan River opposite of ancient Jericho, where your forefathers had once entered and started a new life. It's the place where Elijah hit the waters with his mantle and the Jordan River dried up and he walked across. And then Elisha did the same thing and walked back across. You get to the crossing and as you get there you hear that this new prophet's name is John. And people have started calling him the baptizer or the immerser or the dunker which I think eventually leads to Dunkin' Donuts. So I think that's really how it got its name. It's all the way back from John the Baptist. And, and he's telling people to be washed in the river. And so you kind of worm your way through and get through the brush, and you see him for the first time. Uh, he's standing in the water wearing some type of camel's hair get-up. He has a thick leather belt. He has hair all over his body. Uh, he's standing like a rock that belongs in the water. And you hear him say a word that you haven't heard for a really long time. The word, repent. Repent. And even as you hear it, there are groups of people who are waiting out to him. And as they get out there, he puts a hand on top of their head and pushes them under the water and then releases them. And most of them pop back up. It's a baptism joke, okay? We have a baptism today. I don't want to scare anyone. Uh, most of them pop back up. And a repent is the word for starting over. And so all these people are coming in the river, and John's 
preaching about repentance, and then he baptizes. And in the Middle East, they, they would baptize many of them by putting the hand on the head, and they push under like this. And in other parts of the world, uh, they do baptize a little bit differently than we do. Uh, in the United States, in most evangelical-type churches, we baptize uh, backward, and we kind of let the person control their own nose. I always let them do that. And then we come back up. It shows the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, but in some parts of the world, they baptize you forward, right? Face first. And in some, they do the thing where they put their hand on top of the head and pop you down. And then you kind of pop back up. And uh, the first time I ever baptized in India, uh, they do it differently there. They do either the, the pop down and pop back up or the forward, and they have uh, just some unique things that they do. And we had gone out into this village that was like hours from anything. And they didn't have a river. They didn't have a creek. They didn't have a lake. But the well, they had uh, filled this baptismal, uh, cement baptismal thing up about this much. And we were supposed to baptize all these people. The problem with the cistern, with the baptismal thing, is that it was leaking water faster than we could fill it. Okay, so this is kind of a dilemma. So you got this much water, which really, you can't baptize very well in that, especially if you're an American who doesn't know how to do it. And, and so we had baptized like 10 people, and then they took us into this hut to feed us. And when you're in other places of the world, what they do is they, they bring you the food, and they hand it to you, and then they stand like this and watch you. Just to see what you're going to do, like, is he going to like it? Are they going to eat it? And, and so I had my son Cody with me, and he was 14. And uh, so they brought his display, and he looked at me. I'll never forget his eyes because there was more fear in those eyes that I've ever seen. Because he looked down, and he didn't really know what it was. And I didn't really know what it was either. And uh, the day before, Cody had already had some initiation to the Indian ways. We had gone to this house to visit these people, and the lady had brought us out a treat, and she uh, handed it to us, and then she waited and looked at you. Well, that day, it happened to be a banana, which that's pretty easy, right? Nice, they have good bananas. Uh, but Cody, he didn't eat his right away, and so the lady walked over, and she took his banana, and she showed him, this is how you open the banana, and then she handed it back to him, and he, you know, shook his head and took a bite, and she, she yes, that's the way you do it. Uh, because she was afraid he's going to eat the peel, I think. So, so uh, we're in this hut, and they hand us this stuff. And uh, I have to be honest that it was the hardest thing I've ever tried to put down uh, into my belly, right, in my whole life. Because I think what they did, they took the oldest chicken that they had in the village, right, the oldest one they could find, and then uh, they took a bunch of curry powder, and pulled a few of the feathers off and threw them out, but they left the rest on. And uh, they put the curry powder all over it. They took a meat cleaver, popped it up about, you know, 80, 90 pieces, and threw it in with some rice into a fire, and now it was in front of us. And, uh, and so here's Cody, and he got you to eat with your right hand in India. So he takes his first bite, and he, I heard a crunch. It's not a good sign. And he looks at me like, what am I supposed to do? Do I eat this? 
Uh, and he couldn't stomach it. There's no way he could get it down. So I took some and crunch, crunch, because the bones are, you know, in there. And uh, just good protein for you. And so I'm starting to eat it. Well, this knock on the door bailed us out. It's the best thing that ever happened. All right? So they knock on the hut door. And this, this pastor from another village had come in. And he's wearing his, uh, his lungi and a, a white shirt. And he says something in Indian. And Justice leans over to me and says, there is another woman who wants to be baptized. So I'm like, okay, let's get out there, right? Uh, we don't want her to mess it. So we go outside. Well, the, the water tank has been leaking this whole time because baptism is done. And now there's this much water in the baptism tank. So he says, you are going to baptize her. I go, okay. And so I walk over to the tank. I'm like, how am I going to baptize her? And he says, you push her forward. I go, push her forward? Yeah, you push her forward. She was a dainty little thing, right? And you can't really tell ages because, you know, they got the, they cover their heads and things. And I didn't, couldn't tell whether she was like 60 or 40, somewhere in between, even past that. She looked like she weighed about 90 pounds and she was going to break. And so he says, you get her in and then you baptize her. And so I said, okay. So we get her in. There's this much water. And she sits down inside the tank. And she looks at me, and I say all the stuff, and he's translating. And then all these people are thinking he's saying, like, these religious, spiritual words in English. What he's really saying is, push her head down. That's what he says to me. And all the people are, amen, glory to God. They're saying it in their own language, right? And he says, push her down further. I'm like, she's doubled like this, right? And she's still this far from the water. He says, push her down more. And I look at him like, we may have some breakage going on here. And so I, I kind of did this last little chiropractor move. I was like, and, uh, and she went down far enough to get the top of her head wet, and then she popped back up like a spring. And uh, we got the baptism done. Well, John the Baptist, I don't know if it was quite like that. And Caitlin, it won't be like that today. We'll, we'll do it better. And we even have heated water here. So, uh, but John the Baptist, he's, he's getting all these people this baptism toward repentance. This word repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, when people hear the word repent in 2019, many times what they hear is a summons to give up their private sins and get religion. Right? Like, give up all your fun and get religion. Give up uh, all your sexual misbehavior, all your alcohol, all your drug abuse, get religion. But really, is that what they meant in the first century? And to John and to Jesus, the word repent didn't mean to go forward in a church service. It didn't mean to say you're sorry for your sins. Uh, the Hebrew word is teshuva, which means turn. Simply turn. Turn around. Go the other way. Do a 180. And John's call to Teshuva symbolized a washing from the past, from old habits and priorities, from old scars and old stains. And it meant a fresh start in a new direction. It's the ultimate 
control Z. And Jesus was calling people to turn from darkness, from hurt, from abuse, from pride, from greed, from hatred, from addiction, from laziness, from jealousy. Turn. Repent. When Jesus used the word, it wasn't a negative. It was good news. Turn from darkness. Turn from death. I found a great quote on this from Eugene Peterson in this book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And here's what he said. I love this quote. Repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you've been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God and Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Now that's just phenomenal information right there. Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things and thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim on the path of peace. And we read in Mark 1 a second ago when Jesus called Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him, they turned. They forsook their nets. They left their boats behind. They left their family behind. And answering the call of Jesus requires a break with the past. This is the repentance part. Discipleship, which is following Jesus, always starts with starting over. Discipleship always starts with starting over. Jesus called it spiritual birth, being born again. He said you were physically born on your birthday, but if you've never been spiritually born, you can't be a disciple. And so Jesus said, repent, turn, leave it all behind, and follow me. Let's talk about changing the priority structure. And travel with me to Mark 10 now. Mark chapter 10. You know, some of the people Jesus called to follow him never followed him. One of them is found in this passage. Mark chapter 10, verse number 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions." Now, did you know this is the only instance that we find recorded in which Jesus told someone to sell his possessions before becoming a follower? 
Jesus didn't say this to Matthew or Peter or the other disciples, but he did to this guy. Now, why did he do it to this guy? Well, there's a hint in the text. See, the young man said, Master, I've done all of these. I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus had a special love for him. Like the love of a mother who knows that her child has tried to flush the cat down the toilet and yet keeps insisting that he didn't try to do that. Right? And some of you mothers are shaking your heads because you have a boy at your house who has done this, or maybe even a girl who's done this. And this guy was claiming to have kept all the commandments his whole life. Jesus knew better. So he challenged him on the first commandment, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And surely, if this guy had kept all the commandments, his response was going to reveal God first in his life. But it turned out that God wasn't first in his life. His things were first. His stuff was first. Surely a commandment keeper who was invited to follow the greatest rabbi in history would leave everything and do it. But this guy went away sorrowful and grieved, for he had great possessions, and his great possessions had him. You know, for many people, treasure in heaven has a lower priority than treasure on earth. Did you catch that? For a lot of people, treasure in heaven has a lower priority than treasure on earth. Nothing can be more important to the disciple than following Jesus. In Luke 9, there were three other unnamed people who might have followed Jesus. And one of them vowed to follow Jesus anywhere. And then Jesus told him, uh, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. And it challenged his outlook and he didn't follow and another said, Jesus, I'm really interested in following you, but I need a delay so I can take care of my father's end-of-life ceremonies. Another one said, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me go first and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus refused. He made it clear that there are a lot of good priorities that aren't the best priority. The call that Jesus follows or gives to follow is a call to change the priority structure. Let me put it this way. If you can follow Jesus without reordering your priorities, then you have misunderstood what following is, or you've misdefined it. And when Jesus said, follow me, that means that everything else, good or bad, takes a back seat to the best. There's a, a phrase that's gone around for maybe the last 30 or 40 years called easy believism. And what it means is that you could go to a church or you could go to a concert or you could go to uh, a movie or you could go to wherever. Uh, and, and at the end of it, there would be this call to pray. And if you say this prayer, then all of a sudden you got your ticket to heaven and now you can go back out and do what you were doing before and it's going to be great. Now, that's kind of maybe not how some people would define it, but that's maybe how I would define it is that you could just pray and get a ticket to heaven and then live your life however you want. 
That's clearly not the call to New Testament discipleship. Okay? Everybody who Jesus called to follow, who actually followed, they changed everything. Right? They, they changed everything in their lives. And, and so they made him not just Savior, but they made him Lord. Let's talk about going where Jesus goes. And look with me to John chapter 1. Going where Jesus goes. John chapter 1, we talked a while ago about John the Baptist. John the Baptist encouraged two of his disciples to put their interest and attention to Jesus. And, and so let's see what they did. John chapter 1, verse number 35. Again, the next day after John stood at two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so here are these two disciples of John, and they start following Jesus. And they went where Jesus went, and they saw where he was staying. They spent the day with him. In fact, those two men, Andrew and probably John, they became two of Jesus' closest followers. See, when a student applied to learn from a rabbi, to be one of his disciples, he would follow the rabbi everywhere. Uh, he would leave his synagogue. He would leave his family. Uh, he would leave his village. He would leave his friends. And he would devote his life to learning how to do what his rabbi did. He gave up his whole life to be just like the rabbi. Actually, I was reading a passage of a book by Rob Bell uh, about the rabbis and their followers. And uh, this is kind of a very strange story, but he was over uh, on a trip in Israel, and he was in a, a big airport, and he was watching as a rabbi walked down with, he had his, uh, rabbinical robes on, and, and his disciples were behind him, and the rabbi decided that he needed to use the restroom, and his disciples followed him in to the restroom, right? That's a little bit too much discipleship for me. But, but that's what they did. They followed him everywhere, right? That's what the rabbi and the disciple uh, combination was. And, and so uh, here these guys were, and Andrew and John, they didn't just speak, uh, they didn't just spend one week with Jesus. They were with him for years, they walked through Samaria with him. They slept on the ground beside him with their heads on rocks, just like his was. They dined with him in the house of Zacchaeus. They worshiped in the temple beside him. They were there when Mary Magdalene washed his feet with her hair. They sailed on the Sea of Galilee with him. Andrew followed him in crucifixion. He was crucified at Patras in Greece. But he demanded that they hang his cross at an X at his own request, feeling unworthy to be executed like his rabbi. John followed him in persecution and pain. John cared for Jesus' mother for many years after the cross, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he received the final book of the Bible. 
Now, going where Jesus goes obviously doesn't mean exactly the same thing for us as it meant for them. But it's similar. Where he leads, we follow. Into any place with any group of people, risking being made fun of by the religious ones so that we can show mercy and grace somewhere where only Jesus would go. And that means swallowing hard, getting dirty, enduring abuse, laying down your life, moment by moment, day after day. That's what it takes to go where the rabbi goes. Let's close today by talking about doing what Jesus did. Doing what Jesus did. Dallas Willard's classic book, The Divine Conspiracy, has a definition of a disciple. And and here's what he said. He said, a disciple is someone who has decided to be with another person in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. Discipleship is like an apprenticeship under Jesus. This is what it means when he calls us to follow him. Jesus doesn't intend for us merely to pray a prayer so that we can go to heaven when we die. He doesn't call us just to attend church an hour a week and then go do whatever we want. Jesus calls us to follow, and he expects us to be with him day by day, moment by moment, in order to become capable of doing what he does and to become what he is. And when a person follows Jesus in this way, with the whole heart, with the whole purpose, with no retreat, something truly amazing happens. And I want you to see this. Uh, Make sure you look this one up. It's so powerful. John chapter 14. This is the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus is giving his final talk to his disciples. John chapter 14. And listen what he said to them. John 14, verse number 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. The person who leaves it all behind, changes the priority structure, goes where Jesus goes and does what Jesus did, will experience power through the Holy Spirit to do even greater things than Jesus did. And when you read that, it's like, whoa, could that be true? This doesn't even make any sense. Why would Jesus say that his disciples could do greater works than he ever did? Because Jesus wanted to be what he was, a good teacher. Right? Can you imagine a teacher in a classroom who doesn't want the student to learn as much as he does, as much as he knows? Right? Can you imagine a teacher being proud or vain and, and pushing back from giving that information out to a student? Uh, teachers want their students to grow and to know as much as they do. In fact, there's nothing more fun than a teacher to breed another teacher, right? Teachers love it when students come back and, uh, and work beside them. 
the, the first ministry that we worked in after we married was in a suburb of Dallas in uh, Garland, Texas. And uh, the, one of the highlights of that time we were there for a couple years was I got to teach in the same school as one of the teachers who taught me. And my fifth grade teacher was my favorite teacher ever. And I don't know if he was my favorite because it, it was just so fun. But he could actually, he wasn't much taller than I am, but he could, cook, he could kick the ceiling with his foot. Right? Now, any fifth grader who has their teacher kick the ceiling with his foot, that's pretty cool. Right? I mean, that's karate-like moves. And I want some of you teachers to go for that. Uh, just get up there and kick that ceiling. But I got to teach with him for a couple of years, and it was one of the highlights. And you know what? It was a highlight for him, too, uh, to have a student who became a teacher. Uh, if you are in some other field, if you have a trade, there's nothing better than when your student gets as good as you are at something. Right? Uh, can you, it's like when your kid beats you in basketball for the first time. Right? And that's coming. Wiley's going to be there, bro. You better watch out. I've been playing basketball with these guys on Saturday mornings, and they're all like 20 or 25 years younger than I am, and so they beat up on me. In fact, Joe Valencia, he barely has to strain because he guards me the whole time. <laughs> he guarded somebody else yesterday, and he got hurt. I mean, it's uncanny how that worked. But, but we want our followers to reach where we are. In fact, if you're a parent, I hope this is true, you want your kids to become closer to Jesus than you are. You want them to do more for God than you've done. You want them to follow Jesus more closely than you followed him. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to the Father. And if you'll follow me, the works that I do, you're going to do them too. And greater works than these. Because the Holy Spirit is going to empower you and be on your life. And you're going to reflect God's glory. And so Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we've been given the call to follow. Now, every person in this room is in a different place. Some of you are already committed followers of Jesus. Some of you are still wondering whether you're going to follow Jesus. And as we close in prayer today, what I want you to do is to go into your own heart with God. And you tell him whether or not you're going to follow him this year, this week, today. And commit your life to following him. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus.